0: Welcome to The Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, Planet Earth. But first, let's hear about something that's going to happen next Wednesday.
1: On November 1st, 2023... NASA's Lucy spacecraft will fly by a small main-belt asteroid named Dinkanesh. This flyby was added to Lucy's list of targets in January 2023. There will now be 10 asteroids that the Lucy mission will explore on its record-breaking tour. Dinkanesh will be the smallest main-belt asteroid to have ever been well-imaged by a spacecraft, registering at only about a half-mile in size. The primary purpose of this encounter is to test the spacecraft's terminal tracking system, which will keep Lucy's instruments pointing at the asteroid as it flies by at 10,000 miles per hour. This test may prove crucial to the overall success of the mission. Even with the best Earth-based observations of these distant objects, there will still be some uncertainty about precisely where each target will be as Lucy approaches it. During its journey, Lucy will utilize its Lalori instrument for optical navigation to improve that knowledge, but uncertainties as large as 100 miles may still remain. If nothing was done, the science instruments could completely miss the asteroid during the closest approach. It's for this reason that Lucy uses the terminal tracking system to image the Trojan targets in the final hours of an approach and to autonomously update the spacecraft's onboard knowledge of the location of the asteroid in space. This, in turn, allows the instruments to aim with precision which will facilitate better imaging and measurement of these small bodies. The Dinkanesh asteroid presents the perfect opportunity to test this system. The geometry of this encounter, particularly the angle that the spacecraft approaches the asteroid relative to the Sun, is very similar to the mission's planned Trojan asteroid encounters. This allows NASA to essentially carry out a dress rehearsal under similar conditions, well in advance of the spacecraft's main scientific targets. It's also a full year-and-a-half earlier than the already-planned Donald Johansson asteroid encounter, which will serve as a more intricate and complex test of the spacecraft's systems and instruments. And since Dinkinesh is much smaller than any of the Trojan asteroids that Lucy will be collecting data on, this test is meant to challenge the Terminal Tracking System's capabilities. It's likely that the system will lock onto Dinkinesh for only a few minutes before closest approach compared to the hour or more it will have for the Trojan targets. So, no matter the end result, this flyby will provide Lucy's science team and flight engineers with important insights into how the tracking system can function. After the encounter with Dinkanish, Lucy's orbit around the Sun will bring it back towards Earth for its second gravity assist in December 2024. That assist will send the spacecraft off to meet its main objectives among the Trojan asteroids. While the primary purpose of the Dinkanesh encounter is an engineering test, the data collected may also provide insight on the relationship between the main belt asteroids and near-Earth asteroids. It's an exciting addition to Lucy's groundbreaking mission.
0: And that's Lucy, one of the many, many missions that we are following here on the space show.
2: Earth below
3: us, drifting, falling, floating,
0: weightless, calling, calling home. We continue season four of our Planet Earth series, in which we look at how space technology is helping us understand our home planet. This is episode 56.
4: For more than 50 years, NASA has been collecting and providing data on Earth's land, water, ice and atmosphere. Now a new era of Earth science has begun. Together with international partners, NASA will launch the SWAT mission to provide the first-ever global survey of Earth's surface water, the oceans, lakes, and rivers that affect all of us. But we also need to understand our planet as a complex whole. That's why NASA will launch a fleet of -of state-of-the-art satellites forming the Earth System Observatory, which will create a comprehensive 4D view of Earth, from bedrock to atmosphere like never before. The Earth System Observatory will arm us with crucial data to help us address climate change and protect our communities. But how do we get this critical information to the people who need it? Introducing the Earth Information Center. NASA, working with our federal partners, will equip decision-makers with the information they need to mitigate, adapt, and respond to climate change. We will create a greenhouse gas monitoring system and make data about our changing planet accessible to those who need it most. New satellites observing in the sky and an information center here on Earth, protecting our planet for the next generation. Christopher
0: Potter is a scientist at the Ames Research Center, which is at the southern end of San Francisco Bay. In 2021, he looked at how California's COVID-19 shelter-in-place mandate affected the Bay Area's temperatures. The mandate reduced the number of cars on the road and changed how car parks, highways and large industrial buildings' surfaces absorb sunlight and reflect infrared heat. In late March and April of 2020, there was no traffic anywhere. Potter and his team used satellites to monitor car parks and other surfaces to see if they were hotter or cooler during the pandemic. Visible light is absorbed by the surface and re-radiated as infrared. The team used satellite thermal infrared sensor brightness temperatures from Landsat satellites. They combined this with land surface temperature measurements from a sensor riding on the International Space Station. This sensor is called Stress, which we have described in previous episodes of our space show Planet Earth series. EcoStress is one of those ridiculously long acronyms, meaning Ecosystem Spaceborne Thermal Radiometer Experiment on Space Station. Well, Potter mapped out large flat urban features, such as the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, and measured their thermal heat flux. He was asking the question. If cars are parked and concentrated in giant lots, does the reflectance of the surface change? He said that even shiny car windows may be enough to reflect sunlight, preventing the dark asphalt reaching high temperatures. His study aimed to determine whether that change has contributed to the more or less healthy environment for the millions of people living in the bay area. Now, there's a satellite called Landsat, in fact a series of them, and uh, this series have been observing the deforestation of the Amazon Rainforest. This feature from the Goddard Space Flight Center.
5: The Amazon is the largest tropical rainforest in the world. At over 6 million square kilometers, the Amazon basin and the tropical forests that it holds are about the same size as the entire continental United States, home to millions of people and tens of thousands of species. Landsat is NASA's longest-running record of our changing planet. Data have been taken from Landsat satellites since 1972, and that allows us to go back in time over several very important decades. The Landsat archive is perfectly timed to capture many different waves of colonization across the Amazon.
6: It's very powerful in this sense, because it's not just an image, it's actually a bunch of information. What happens with Landsat is that it has several bands which have specific information, so pixel by pixel, but you have at least seven pieces of information that can be combined in different ways to see different things. So if you are interested to see vegetation, there is one combination that you make that can give you more information about vegetation.
5: Landsat satellite data are the most important source we have about how much deforestation happens each year across the Amazon. Forty years ago, we see small-scale deforestation creating roads that look like fish bones into the forest. But by the middle of the Landsat record, we see large-scale commodity production taking hold. So today's deforestation across the Amazon frontier isn't a single family. It's tractors and bulldozers clearing large swaths of rainforest to make room for industrial-scale cattle ranching and crops. So far, the amount of area that's been deforested in the Brazilian Amazon alone is equivalent to the size of the state of California. Deforestation in the Amazon happens with fire. Today's deforestation looks like the large-scale clearing of swaths of rainforest using heavy machinery, and then the land is burned and burned again to remove all of the tropical trees and timber. If we think about the size of a soccer field, we think about deforestation in those same size categories. So deforestation in the early part of the Landsat record might have been numbered in a single soccer field. Today's deforestation happens in tens, if not hundreds, of soccer fields. The value of the Landsat Archive is that we have a long-term memory of the changes that have occurred across the Amazon frontier. And the Mapiomas record of land cover across the Amazon is an excellent example
6: so Mapiomas is a network formed by NGOs that works with science, universities, and startups in technology. Our mission is to map and monitor everything that is related to land cover, land use in Brazil, always with an historical perspective. Because back in 75, 0.5% of deforestation, less than 1%. In 88, it was 5%. And now we are getting close to 20% of deforestation in the Amazon. You know, between 20 and 25%, what the science is saying, that it's maybe the point of no return. And that's very fast, right? Um, 40, 45 years, you lose 20% of the Amazon. So we could precisely identify how many events of deforestation happen in Brazil, or what's the size, who is responsible, what is the piece of land that is there, if they had an authorization or not, and we find out that over 99% of all the deforestation that happened in Brazil in 2019, it was illegal. This is really kind of a striking information that makes us to move and say, okay, we can't accept. We just simply can't accept that we live on a place where the illegality is actually the norm, right? So this is like the type of thing that we want to kind of use the remote sensing data to kind of shake in the decision-making process of the different agencies in the public and in the private sector to take better decisions for what we call the stewardship of the management of our natural resources which are crucial for all reasons in Brazil. The advantage of Landsat first is free, that's absolutely <laughs> crucial for us. Second is that there's no other sensor, not even with lower resolution or high resolution, that will have a history consistent over the time for 35 years of image available. So if you really want to have a long history of understanding of any process in the the earth, Landsat is where you should go.
5: Without Landsat, we would not have the record we have today about deforestation and changing agriculture across a vast and important biome. We anticipate the launch next year of Landsat 9, which will carry on the legacy of this data record, allows us to go back in time and understand how our planet has changed over 40 years.
0: And that uh, new satellite, Landsat 9, is now in orbit. Now, EMIT was or is an instrument that was launched to the International Space Station on July the 14th last year aboard the CRS-25 spacecraft. Over the following two weeks, it was installed on the space station's Express Logistics Carrier 1, tested, then powered on. The first imaging spectroscopy measurements were acquired on July 28th last year. Given that EMIT's full name is Earth Surface Mineral Dust Source Investigation, it is probably appropriate that this first image was of an area north of Perth in Western Australia. EMIT measures the spectral reflectance from 380 to 2,500 nanometers for every point in the image with 285 contiguous spectral channels. The image swath is 80 kilometres, that's uh, 80 kilometres wide on the ground. The measurement, performance and area coverage requirements for EMIT are optimised to accurately map the surface mineralogy of Earth's arid land dust source regions. It supports atmospheric correction and screening for confounding factors such as clouds and heavy aerosols. Now, why, you may well ask, would we want to measure mineral dust? Well, mineral dust lofted into the atmosphere from arid land regions plays an important role in the Earth system. It affects a lot of things. For example, direct and indirect aerosol radiative forcing, atmospheric chemistry, cryosphere melt, that's ice, Uh, surface hydrology, the biogeochemistry of ocean and terrestrial ecosystems. And dust also poses a hazard to humans. Now, during its first year of operation, EMIT will acquire the first ever comprehensive map of our planet's arid land dust source regions. And here is a talk that was given about that at the American Geophysical Union in December of 2021.
3: I'm Rob Green, the PI of the Earth's Surface Mineral Dust Source Investigation. I'd like to quickly tell you about it. So the Earth has a mineral dust cycle with many impacts throughout the Earth system. Uh, In the air, land regions of our planet, under conditions of strong winds, mineral dust is lofted from the surface or emitted from the surface. Where it interacts throughout the Earth system, it can absorb and or uh, scatter radiation, so heat or cool the atmosphere. It plays a role in cloud formation. When it precipitates over the ocean, it's an important fertilizer for many uh, biological Processes and when it precipitates over tropical forests, for example, it can be an important fertilization element. In addition, uh, when it lands on snow, it, it plays a significant role in accelerating the melt of snow, in particularly in the mid latitude regions. And of course, for us, it can be a hazard um, locally for our, our for breathing and and for visibility. So um, it's involved throughout the Earth system. Currently, uh, knowledge of the dust source mineral composition is very poor. And we need to improve that to understand the current, better understand the current impacts of mineral dust in this cycle and its potential future impacts. We're gonna use with EMIT, NASA invented technology called imaging spectroscopy, where we measure a spectrum for every point in an image, a line moving across the surface of the earth um, through a telescope into a spectrometer onto a detector ray. And then for each column in that detector ray, we measure the spectrum or the fingerprint of the surface of the earth in this case i'm showing the 10 important mineral spectral signatures that we want to understand as they relate to the mineral dust cycle and particularly radiative forcing but those lines from 400 to 2500 nanometers are all different from each other so those are the spectral signatures of different minerals based on their molecular compounds so we can actually see those fingerprints from orbit and will be uh, launched to the International Space Station. With those fingerprints, we can calibrate them, and then we can produce these detailed mineral maps of the Earth's surface. And uh, this is the instrument we're building and will be launching in 2022. Interesting, the first imaging spectrometer was uh, built by NASA a number of years ago, and I've shown just a picture for reference there. So I'm very excited to report, well, it's been challenging building an instrument with COVID. None of us expected to have to do that, and there's a lot of hands-on work in doing that. Um, We're very far along. We've we've built a very much state-of-the-art instrument, optically fast, F1.8, to convey those photons, give us high signal noise, high accuracy of the minerals. I'm showing the optical bench that's now been assembled and and been through launch simulation, um, and it was very well aligned. In fact, it's exceptionally well aligned, uh, better than any previous spectrometer that I'm aware of. The electronics are ready. We're going to bring those pieces together um, onto the platform that's mounted to the ISS, telescope on top, electronics, it's sort of a sandwich, and then the uh, platform that's mounted to the International Space Station on the bottom. And so we're we're very uh, far along and expect to complete this instrument in February and launch on uh, the 1st of May, 2022. Um, Our destination is the International Space Station. Um, It has an ideal orbit. It goes over the air land regions of the Earth um, multiple times over the course of a year. So we'll get multiple samples to see the surface, uh, avoid issues if there are clouds, Though mostly we're working in air land regions, and or if there are severe dust clouds, we want to see the surface for our science. Um, and as I said, we're planning to launch on SpaceX crew resupply number 25. And I want to mention that all the measurements from MIT will be available uh, to the public uh, at the Land Processes Archive. Uh, so this is a summary. Uh, again, uh, MIT is focused to close our gap in understanding of mineral dust heating or cooling of the Earth now and in the future. Those are our science objectives. We're looking at mineral dust in the source regions to understand uh, how that mineral dust, when it's lofted into the atmosphere, interacts with the Earth system. I'm showing in the center here the regions we will measure, which are the air land regions of planet Earth, which fall very nicely below the ISS. Then we're using very advanced imaging spectroscopy to measure full spectral signatures of the surface of the Earth. And we'll do this, for the arid land regions of the earth and we'll go from a situation now where there are about five thousand measurements constraining earth system models to a billion direct measurements made by emit that's a very nice improvement we will be using these measurements in conjunction with very advanced earth system models that can take those initialized conditions of the surface mineralogy and project how they're interacting with their system today and how they may interact in the future under various climate scenarios and those relate to our two science objectives. I did want to also highlight there there will be additional value from the spectra that we will measure for geology and resources, biodiversity and ecosystems, agriculture, fire fuels, hazards, surface plastics, mid latitude snow and ice impacts, the um, algal blooms and even methane and CO2, all these molecules or molecules related with these elements are captured in the emit spectral range. While we're focused on our science objectives and we'll achieve those, we hope our data sets can, can support NASA and others to investigate these other areas uh, of research and applications. And as Karen said, for ap- actionable information. So thank you very much.
0: You're listening to 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside.
3: This is planet Earth. You're looking
4: at planet Earth. Bop, 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 bop. This is planet
0: Earth. Nicole Stott is one of the, well, just over, I think it's over 600 people who have seen our planet from outside our atmosphere. And one of the things that Nicole saw on her, uh, one of her missions, is thunderstorms.
2: There is not anything on one side of the planet that's not affecting the other side. One of the most impressive things was watching storm activity moving around the planet. And I remember growing up in Florida and thinking, when there was a thunderstorm, because we'd get a lot of them, okay, there's that storm. And once it was gone, it was gone. Didn't occur to me that it was going somewhere else or had been somewhere else before it got to me. And you cannot deny that. When you look at a thunderstorm from space, it's like watching neurons firing in a brain. You know, these tentacles of light that are just connecting and traveling. Yeah, it might be starting over Florida, but it's like moving across the ocean to Africa as far as you can see. I mean, I remember floating there just thinking about, oh, my gosh, everything is connected. Seeing it that way, it seems alive. And I just remember being in awe of that. The perspective is one of unity, of realizing that it is one planet. You know, 250 miles is really not that far in the grand scheme of things but it seems far when you're in space on the space station or on the space shuttle and i think the perspective is like a reality check of seeing this thing you thought you knew in a whole new way and realizing that my gosh that is a planet and i am farther away from it than i ever likely will be And I feel like more a part of everyone, everything that's down there, than I had when I was right in the middle of it.
0: That was Nicole Stott. Now, the RV Calypso was an oceanographic research vessel leased to Jacques Cousteau. In 1975, John Denver wrote the hit song Calypso, which peaked at number seven in the Australian hit parade and number five in New Zealand.
6: To sail on a dream on a crystal clear ocean,
7: to ride on
6: the crest of a wild raging
0: storm, to work
7: in the service
0: life and the living, in search of the answers to questions unknown, to be part of the move. John Denver, Calypso. Calypso spelt with a Y. Well, Calypso, with an I, was a joint NASA and French National Space Agency satellite. It's an acronym for Cloud, Aerosol, LIDAR, and Infrared Pathfinder Satellite Observations. And this satellite was launched in 2006, April the 28th, and its mission ended on August the 1st this year. And that ending was due to a lack of propellant. It was orbiting 700... Well, it still is orbiting 700 kilometres above the Earth at an inclination of 98.2 degrees. And it went round the Earth every... minutes and so far it's done over 41,000 revolutions. Now the instruments aboard it are the cloud aerosol lidar which is doing vertical profiles or was doing vertical profiles of aerosols and clouds, the wide field camera which was used for star tracking and the imaging infrared radiometer which detected cirrus clouds and emissivity and particle sizes. Well, here's Karen St. Germain, and uh, she's the Earth Science Division Director at NASA. But I think she's going to introduce herself, actually. Hello, my friends.
7: I'm Karen St. Germain, and I'm NASA's Earth Science Division Director. Calypso deserves much celebration. Yes, This is a bittersweet day with the end of the mission, but let's focus on the countless achievements and the research and technical legacy that Calypso leaves us. The science of Calypso continues to benefit all humanity by delivering groundbreaking insights into the role that clouds and aerosols play in shaping Earth's weather, climate, and air quality. Calypso's measurements of global aerosols opened our eyes to the importance of aerosols in climate change, leading to future missions that will continue studying global aerosols. Calypso's use of atmospheric LIDAR demonstrated the value of a new and reliable instrument in understanding climate and weather. Calypso created new ways for us to collect Earth observations as part of a constellation of satellites that merge their data. So, Calypso serves as a technical Earth observation pathfinder. The mission team flew Calypso in very close formation with the CloudSat mission, demonstrating an approach that was then adopted by other missions to form the A-Train satellite constellation. And finally, Calypso is the mission that helped build an extraordinary partnership between our nations. Collaboration, trust, and understanding that let Kness and NASA find new opportunities to work together. It's my personal belief that Calypso was a seminal mission. Calypso tested us and taught us, and forged a lasting and exceptional partnership between us. My deepest gratitude goes to all the people from both NASA and Kness who worked so hard to make Calypso an outstanding mission. I thank you all, and I look forward to what we can do next together.
0: For over a century, mariners have reported an eerily beautiful phenomena they called Milky Sea. This was enormous patches of glowing water that sometimes persist for several nights in a row. Now these patches defied scientific investigation because they were impossible to predict and short-lasting. Eventually, in 2005, satellites with sensitive light sensors were placed in low Earth orbit and were able to confirm the mariner's tails. Sixteen years on and enough satellite data has been collected to reveal the phenomenon in detail. These patches can be larger than 100,000 square kilometres. The satellites involved are Suomi NPP and NOAA-20. Between 2012 and this year, researchers analysing the satellite data found 12 instances of Milky Sea. Now, some unknown organism is thought to cause the glow, but until a ship samples the water, the exact cause will remain unknown. With satellites to guide them, marine research vessels may be able to be in the right place at the right time. Planet Earth is Blue. Now we're going to have an interview with Gavin Schmidt, who's a climate scientist uh, and the director of the Goddard Institute for Space Sciences. Now this interview was conducted by the Goddard Space Flight Centre in Greenbelt, Maryland, and we're reading the questions here in the studio. Now Gavin, What did the 2023 July Global Temperature Report say? July 23 was head and shoulders
8: above uh, any of the other months in the record that goes back to the late 19th century, uh, and is probably the warmest month uh, going back many hundreds of years, though our estimates of uh, precisely what was going on on a month-by-month basis as you go further back in time obviously get a little bit more uh murky uh but we uh, but we're seeing these these very large trends in the last uh centuries, certainly in the last fifty years, and this is really just the epitome of the trends that we've been seeing.
0: What extent was that a product of the general trend of human induced climate change, and to what extent was it individual climatological events
8: what's happening in july twenty twenty three that makes this particular month so strong? Um We actually have lots of different things going on at any one time, so we have this large uh background state that 's changing right this this the global warming that 's uh that's kind of decade on decade uh, just getting warmer um but then in any particular year or month there's usually uh some natural variability in the weather that that 's adding to the the changes or or making it cooler um uh this year we have uh, the beginning of an El Nino in the tropical Pacific. Uh, normally, we think of the El Nino having an effect, you know, a, a lagged effect on the uh, on the broader uh, temperatures. Maybe a few months after it peaks, uh, the El Nino has not yet peaked, and so uh, that will happen uh, in December or January uh, of, uh, of uh, towards um, the end of this year, uh, and so that's going to have a maximum effect, not this year but next year in 2024. Uh, But right now it's adding a little bit. Um, We have some, uh, you know, kind of pushes towards warmer temperatures from the uh, eruption of Hunga Tonga in January of last year, which put a very large amount of uh, water vapor into the upper stratosphere. Uh, But it's only large with respect to the stratosphere, because the stratosphere is so dry. In terms of the total amount of water vapor is very small, um, and so that has a relatively small impact on global mean temperatures, on the order of a few hundredths of a degree. But nonetheless, that's pushing us in a in a warming direction. Uh, we're also seeing uh, reductions in uh, uh, air pollution, in in aerosols and sulphates, uh, because of shipping, because of technology changes, uh, because of efficiency in uh, in the Western worlds. Lots of clean air acts and people working through that. Uh so that's cleaning up the air, and that is taking away an effect that was artificially cooling the atmosphere, and so now that's kind of being uh, being more manifest and so that is something that, as we go on uh, is also adding to the warmth uh that the long term trends though are still being driven by the increases in greenhouse gases
0: and how do these temperatures relate to the events of this year when there were heat waves in the United States? Fires in Canada and Europe, and low extents of Antarctic sea ice.
8: It used to be the case that uh, we were only able to see the signal of global warming in the global mean statistics, but now it's so large that we can see it almost everywhere. So we can see the signatures of global warming in the heat waves in the American Southwest, in the heat waves in North Africa, in the heat waves in South America or in Asia. Uh, All of these things now have become more likely and more likely to be more intense because of that background global warming signal. The change in the North Atlantic has become much more likely because of that background global warming signal. And so now we don't need to just look at the global meat. We can look at local regional changes and we can see the signal Of those long-term trends. It's not hidden by the noise, by the weather variability. We can see it clearly.
0: And and what do you expect to see during the rest of this year? Uh, For example, does this mean that we'll see the warmest year on record? So this peak warmth uh,
8: this summer, and uh, that will continue, uh, I think, mostly for the rest of the year, um, makes it quite likely that we will see 2023 as the warmest year. It's not completely certain, depends a little bit on how the weather plays out uh, for the rest of the year. Um, but as that El Nino is building, um, it will start to be, uh, you know, it'll be quite a serious event uh, by the end of the year, and that will affect temperatures into the spring and and, uh, and summer of uh, 2024, and it will almost certainly lead to 2024 being the warmest year on record, and will likely uh, top 2023. So uh, we've had this happen before, 1998-89, 2015-2016, where we had Uh, Warm years uh, that that had a beginning, uh, El Nino, and then the the year with the El Nino uh, was warmer still. And then it kind of comes down again um, after that. But still, the long-term trends uh, keep pushing it so that every time this happens, we are at a higher uh, threshold, we're at a higher level, and the impacts are increasing uh, much faster than the global mean temperatures.
0: And what are NASA's contributions to studying heat on our planet?
8: NASA has, as one of its main missions, is to look at the Earth um, and to study the Earth as a planet. And we use as much information as we can bring to bear on the question. We have satellites that are tracking water vapor, um, uh, aerosols, uh, temperatures, uh, clouds, ozone, uh, windiness... Um, And then we match that with analyses of data on the ground. And so all of those things uh, add up to give us a more complete picture of what's going on. And then we work uh, by building models, by building simulations, by doing the attributional work. You know, why are things changing the way they are changing? Um, And that involves piecing together all of the different fingerprints that we're seeing from the stratosphere to to the surface, to the ocean, from the tropics, to the poles. Um, and uh, and and try to piece it all together. Uh, we monitor the sun. We monitor the volcanoes. We monitor the temperatures. We monitor the greenhouse gases. Uh, NASA really tries to do it all. And unfortunately, when you do all that, when you put all of that together, what you find is that those trends that are driving these record temperatures, these record heat waves, they're due to our activities, uh, not not NASA, but 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 people in general. Uh, and it's the emissions of greenhouse gases that are the dominant term uh, in all of that uh, and that's that's not great to hear but that is what the science says
9: 88.3 Southern FM
7: This is Planet Earth You're looking at Planet
2: Earth blah ba ba ba, ba, ba.
0: By the end of next year, a new satellite called Maya should be in orbit. MAIA, M-A-I-A, is an acronym for Multi-Angle Imager for Aerosols. As this name suggests, it will take images of airborne particles from multiple angles the satellite will have a camera sensitive to 14 spectral bands ranging from ultraviolet through the visible wavelengths to shortwave infrared. By combining the satellite images with ground-based particle measurements, scientists will generate maps of sulfate, nitrate, elemental carbon, organic carbon and dust concentrations around the globe. Armed with this data, a team of epidemiologists will use birth, death and hospitalisation records to study linkages to human health of air quality. This is
7: Planet Earth. You're looking at Planet
2: Earth. This is Planet Earth.
3: NASA has selected the polarized Submillimeter ice cloud radiometer as the winning proposal for the Earth Venture Instrument 6 announcement of opportunity. Known by its acronym, SUR, this mission consists of two identical cubesats that will study clouds that form at high altitudes throughout tropical and subtropical regions to better understand their diurnal variability and, in particular, how their ice content changes. This information will serve as crucial and unique input to global climate models and help lead to more accurate simulations of these high-altitude clouds. Each cube sat will be about
0: 30 centimeters long. Scientists from Vanderbilt University and the Goddard Space Flight Center will be involved. are oh, you listening to the space show?
9: Have you ever heard that something called the ozone layer is thinning? Or that your aerosol hairspray is what's causing it? or that it leads to more severe sunburns and UV rays. This is referring to the ozone hole, but what exactly does it all mean? Welcome to Ozone 101. The ozone hole's proper name is actually the Antarctic ozone hole because when it forms, it forms over Antarctica. But before we get into what that is, let's first talk about what ozone itself is. Ozone is a gas comprised of three oxygen atoms, About 90% of the Earth's ozone exists in the stratosphere, the layer of the atmosphere that extends from 8 to about 30 miles above the Earth's surface. In fact, the stratosphere is often referred to as the ozone layer. Ozone acts as a sunscreen around the Earth, filtering out harmful ultraviolet radiation, or UV rays, which are mainly absorbed in the stratosphere. Without an ozone layer, UV radiation would sterilize the Earth. With a damaged but still present ozone layer, there would be more sunburns, more skin cancer cases, increased cases of eye damage, the wilting and loss of trees and plants, and significantly lessened crop yields. Suffice it to say, ozone is pretty important for the planet. So what causes the ozone hole? There are several major factors that together lead to the destruction of ozone, thus creating the ozone hole. Those factors are one, very strong winds around the south pole or the polar vortex 2 the sun's rays 3 chlorine and bromine compounds from ozone depleting substances and 4 cold temperatures below -109 degrees fahrenheit in the stratosphere which form a specific kind of cloud polar stratospheric clouds the polar vortex forms in the southern hemisphere stratosphere during the winter as temperatures drop and when sunlight returns to Antarctica in late winter and early spring, temperatures are still cold enough to form polar stratosphere clouds. And now there's also sunlight. Chemical reactions take place on the cloud particle surfaces, converting unreactive forms of chlorine and bromine into reactive chemicals. The vortex acts as a sort of container, confining the contents of the Antarctic stratosphere within its bounds, allowing the reactive chlorine and bromine compounds to destroy ozone molecules. That's when depletion can occur on a large scale. With the presence of sunlight, the reactive chlorine and bromine compounds produced during winter begin to deplete ozone molecules by stealing one of their oxygen atoms, leaving just oxygen gas or O2 in its wake. As long as the polar stratosphere clouds are present, these reactions will occur over and over again, until the ozone is nearly gone. This forms what we call the ozone hole, but that's really a misnomer. It's actually more of a thinned layer. In mid to late spring, the vortex begins to break up, and the polar air depleted of ozone is mixed back into the rest of the southern hemisphere. The ozone hole is gone. Ozone depletion has still occurred, It's just no longer all concentrated in one small area. It's spread around the atmosphere. So, why is the ozone hole bigger and longer lasting in certain years? Well, it all comes down to weather. Just like some winters are colder and longer than others on the Earth's surface, the same goes for weather in the stratosphere. If the Antarctic stratosphere stays cold, the polar vortex and the ozone hole within it will persist. And in years with cold springtime temperatures the polar vortex and the ozone hole are large make no mistake ozone depletion is not a natural thing it stems from human emissions of chemicals called chlorofluorocarbons or cfc's in the early 1900s refrigerators used toxic gases like ammonia and methyl chloride as refrigerants unfortunately this led to fatalities as the toxic gases leaked out of the appliances So the search began for a non-toxic and non-flammable chemical that could be used as a refrigerant. Thus, the CFC was born. There are many types of CFCs, but the two most common are CFC-11 and CFC-12. In the 1930s, the production and consumption of CFCs began to skyrocket. By the early 1980s, over 300 million pounds of CFC-11 alone were being released into the atmosphere each year. Then, in 1985, British researcher Joe Farman and his colleagues published their research on large seasonal ozone losses over Antarctica. Thanks to the combined efforts of the quick-acting science community, industry, and policymakers, the Montreal Protocol was signed in 1987, restricting the production and consumption of CFCs. Every nation on Earth has now signed the Montreal Protocol. So, for the record, your hairspray and aerosol deodorant hasn't been harming ozone since these laws went into effect in the 80s. But why do we still see an ozone hole today? First, CFCs have lifetimes of 50 to 100 plus years, and it will take some time for the concentration of CFCs in the atmosphere to drastically decline. Second, there are still CFCs being released into the atmosphere today. For example. As an old refrigerator or air conditioning unit deteriorates in a landfill, the CFCs within are slowly released. From the time a CFC is released into the air, it takes about five years for its impact to be felt over Antarctica, where depletion will occur. The CFCs emitted at the surface eventually rise into the tropical stratosphere. The ozone in the stratosphere blocks most of the sun's UV radiation, So the CFCs have to rise above most of the ozone layer before sunlight can then break them down. Once they get high enough, solar radiation releases the chlorine, most of which eventually goes into ozone-safe forms like hydrochloric acid and chlorine nitrate. When these compounds make their way to Antarctica, those chemical reactions start up. And if you're wondering why Antarctica, these reactions are unique to the polar regions because of their extreme low temperatures and presence of polar stratospheric clouds. One chlorine atom can destroy thousands of ozone molecules and millions of tons of CFCs were pumped into the atmosphere from the 1920s through the early 1990s. As CFC concentrations in the atmosphere continue to decline, the ozone hole is expected to gradually become less severe and scientists expect the Antarctic ozone to recover back to healthy levels around the year 2070.